0: So, I uh, was held up at knife point when I was in seminary. And I love to start the story that way because it makes it sound so much more dramatic than it actually was. Um, you know, I lived in on-campus housing when I was in grad school, and so we all had to make use uh, of this little um, tiny laundry cabin that kind of sat on the back side of the property there. And it was late one night, and I was reading some theology textbook while I was waiting for my clothes to dry, when two... very clearly inebriated men burst into the door. Uh, Can I help you? Was all I could think to say to them. And of course, afterwards, they didn't make a whole lot of sense, but they clearly were there for something. Uh, And and I like to imagine in my memory that there was this moment that sort of uh, dawned on these alcohol-soaked brains where they thought to themselves, you know, this might not have been the most lucrative score that we could have chosen on this particular evening. I'm there in a pair of raggedy shorts reading, reading a copy of George Eldon Ladd's uh, Introduction to the New Testament. Probably not the picture of wealth and prosperity and someone who's going to create a great score. But of course, things got really serious when he pulled out the knife, and I'm sure that he saw my eyes get wide when he did, <clears throat> and probably realized he had overplayed his hand a little bit much. Because his friend next to him kind of slapped him on the shoulder and was like, let's get out of here. And so the knife wielder kind of giggled to himself and turned to leave. But not before he grabbed off of one of the shelves in the little cabin a a box of detergent and goes racing off with it to take home with it. So the whole thing literally maybe took like two minutes in its entirety. Um, And I really never felt like I was in any physical danger despite the knife. But what amazed me was, in the days after, just how angry it made me. You know, I mean, granted, all it was was a, I don't know, a $4 box of all temperature uh, that these guys had taken with them. But for whatever reason, it was something that belonged to someone else, and these guys had taken it. And it just galled me. And I do think that it was one of the first times in which I realized that there's a powerful connection that human beings have with their things. With our stuff. You know, having our property takes away from some, takes a, something taken away from us feels really personal, even when the property itself wasn't all that valuable. So my premise this morning, as we look at the eighth commandment, <clears throat> is this connection between my property and my person is actually rooted in how the Bible calls people to live out the image of God. In other words, we've said over and over again, these Ten Commandments are not just ethical considerations. They are a blueprint for human flourishing. And further, we've said that God is working this powerful healing through the lives of these newly freed people towards a total reorientation around his character. In other words, these commandments are instructions on how to renew the image of God in broken, sinful people. That's what's going on here. How it is that God is going to advance his, person, per, his purposes in the world. But at the root of this revelation is really a revelation of God. We're finding out the things that he cares about. So not only do we see ourselves in the commandments, but we see what his character is like. And so it may come as some surprise, a surprise to you that God has seized your relationship to your possessions to be at the heart of who you are. Because God himself has made you that way. So I want to unpack this again with three sort of ideas. Number one, I want to look at the connection to our possessions. Number two, the danger, though, in our possessions. And number three, the opportunity in our possessions. Okay, first of all, the connection to possessions. Here's the deal. The things you own are one of the most direct routes into your soul. This whole sense of owning something is both a God-given blessing but also because of sin, one of our greatest struggles. Why? I found it very interesting. I heard one commentator say that there's a real interesting relationship between the seventh and the eighth commandment. Uh, If you think about it, he says, if there's any way to almost certainly mess up your life, it's gonna happen through sex or money. Amazing how often that happens. Why? Because if you go back to the Garden of Eden, you'll find that God gave Adam and Eve two things. The first thing he gave to them was each other. This this sexual bond of marriage. But the second thing he gave to them was the world, the garden to subdue. He gave them possessions as a means, we understand, of some control. And so for that reason, because of sin, we get emotionally attached to our stuff. What we are seems to really include what we have. In other words, to own something is to incorporate it into our personality, Think about how much pride you take in your purchases. You know, you, 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 a brand new car, a brand new house, ooh, uh, a brand new church. Think about the pride that comes. <laughs> Have you ever thought, found yourself talking to your stuff when nobody else is around? You kind of get in your car that you like and you say something like, we've been through a lot, you and me. Don't lie, you've done it. We connect with our stuff in that way. It's not just my stuff, it's me that's violated when someone steals or harms those things. It's very interesting, in the chapters just following Exodus chapter 20, you see God begin to unpack this in a ton of different ways. In chapter 21, verse 16, the Bible prohibits what's known as man-stealing. But in the subsequent verses, as it unpacks it, you find that it's it's outlawing slavery, uh, unjust imprisonment, but even coercive business practices, uh, or even employee uh, manipulation through insufficient pay. All of that, the Bible will say, is stealing. In chapter 22, verse 7, there are these demands not only that we protect our own stuff, but also to protect our neighbor's possessions when we're given charge over them. In, in twenty-two fourteen, we find that we have to make restitution for anything that we damage. In other words, protecting your neighbor's things are a way of protecting your neighbor's life. They're connected in that way. But again, don't miss the point. This measure of control is something that God gave us. In the Garden of Eden, God delegates some of his authority and allows mankind to act as a steward. That's a good word, a great word to sort of define what God has done. A steward is someone who is not the ultimate owner but one who is a measured or limited owner of the thing. Example, Psalm 115 verse 16 says, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. That's the relationship. Uh, Pastor Phil Riken says this, A steward is one who cares for someone else's property. He's not free to use it however he pleases, but only to manage it in accordance with his master's intentions. Listen to this. He has given us the sacred trust Of looking after the world. That's a great way to define how a Christian sees possessions around us. I find it fascinating that you even see God engaging to some degree in this behavior, even in the book of Exodus. All through, especially when you get the instructions around the tabernacle, you find God sort of deeming certain objects to be holy or or certain artifacts as being holy to the Lord. You remember that? Well, what do you have? You have God there looking and saying, I am holy. So therefore, these things, to some degree, participate in my holiness. In other words, as images of God, the things that we own become extensions of our persons. Now, but you know how the story goes. Adam and Eve decide that they don't want to be stewards. They want to be outright owners. And so what happens is, is these God-given responsibilities become overpowering forces. Why? Because they're masked as gods. They offer our allegiance to them. So now, when we look at them, they begin to feel like ultimate powers. I mean, think about the exhilaration that you feel when you land the big sale, when you get the big account, when you get the big raise or promotion, or you buy that really, really nice car. Because it's so easy to mistake that exhilaration as if it's the meaning of life. So what that means is that at any given turn, on any given expenditure of my time and my talents and my treasures, I am very likely to sell my soul right along with it, given the nature of our constitution. So therefore, the Eighth Commandment comes in and says, I'm going to go against your spiritual constitution, <laughs> I'm trying to stop something that destroys you and also the joy that you could have in managing possessions when you idolize in the way in which you do. I really don't think there's any choice the Eighth Commandment gives us. You either come to grips with God's design for you and your things or you serve them as masters and they end up destroying you. That's the line down the center of your heart that the Eighth Commandment draws because of this connection to our possessions. Okay, second point. And I think it sets us up very nicely to understand why there are so many dangers in our possessions. Let's look at that for a second second point. Because now you can see the rationale. Stealing is an act of violence to other image bearers. That's why God condemns it. To deprive them of a part of the world that he has given them by divine right to take care of. So don't instantly get sort of distracted by the obvious forms of stealing. Well, you know, I haven't mugged anybody in years. And boy, armed robbery I've not done since I was in college or something like that. I don't know. (laughs) Armed robbery. That what y'all do, college students, right? Honestly, the problem that we have is more the the sort of subtle, what we might call white-collar stealing. That's the kind of thing that sort of engages us more often. And honestly, statistically, is what people like us in this room are more likely to be engaged in. That's what's actually really eroding things in society. There are so many ways to do it. You know, there's theft of time. When I, as an employee, do not do my best work for my employer, I have, in that sense, robbed and stolen from him my labor, not giving him what he has paid me for. On the other hand, if an employee doesn't, employer doesn't pay well, then you're not giving your employees good value for their time. That's what James 5.1 is about. It says you can steal from employees by not paying what they're worth. You can create a product that doesn't do what it's supposed to do, and I'm stealing from people. I can portray it as if it does, calling it marketing, when the truth of the matter is all I'm doing is stealing quality from people by telling it something that it doesn't do. The Bible actually goes so far as to say, if you don't pay your debts promptly, then you're stealing. Let me give an example. Proverbs 3, 27 and 28 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Don't say to your neighbor, go and come again and tomorrow I'll give it when you have it with you. Hey, for a second there, focus on that word, to whom it is due. That's a very interesting way to phrase that, isn't it? Because in the teacher's mind, the proverb writer's mind, the resources that we have, whether they're monetary or otherwise, are owed to the people who need it. Owed to them. Which, This is a radical vision of generosity, which by the way has no parallels at all in other ancient Near Eastern law codes of that particular culture. There was nothing like it. And so therefore we've got to search out what are the ways in which I'm engaging in this? It may be that we do what everybody does, which is to pad our expense account in our business. Uh, It may be that we spend our time thoughtlessly pilfering public property, whether we're at a hotel or a hospital or at a building site, or maybe in a church, I don't know. It includes cheating on the government and my taxes and all the myriad ways there are to do that. Maybe fudging a little bit on my time card, sort of rounding up for hours bill that I didn't necessarily actually work. It can be price gouging, false advertising. Sometimes when I see how exorbitant credit card interest rates are, you think, somebody's stealing something of in that. Insurance fraud. But here's the crazy thing. We often don't realize exactly what all this graft is really doing to us. Uh, In my research for this sermon, I came across the Center for Strategic and International Studies that had published a report on the toll that international corruption is taking on the world around us. Apparently, they did a survey of 144 countries and found that 64 of those countries said that corruption was in the top three things that were keeping their economy back from being what it could be. Half, almost half were saying that that's what was sort of driving, driving numbers that they said probably around the range of a trillion dollars a year just to account for corruption. A recent statistic I read said that the theft of time and property probably costs American businesses some $200 billion a year just to account for corruption. Do the math on that. What that means is is if 10% of the people in the state of Mississippi, had some kind of experience with God's truth and and decided to to do whatever they could to rid stealing from their own life and hearts, it wouldn't just be good for them. You would have millions of dollars pumped into our own state economy if the statistics are true. Extraordinary. But the truth is, in our world, most of the products and services that we buy and have have attached to them what we might know as corruption tax. Some people said it's as much as 25%. And that's what it costs just to cover business theft. I was reading in California something they had created called a theft surcharge on the purchase of any new vehicle. That's money you had to pay when you bought a new car to account for how many people in the state were stealing cars. (laughs) So my point is, this is not just an individual problem. It's all of our problems. We all suffer whenever we deal with the danger of our possessions. But thirdly and finally, I want to look at the opportunity of our possessions, not just the connection and the danger, but there really is an opportunity here. Why? Because remember, every command has a positive side. They're stated negatively, but there's a positive side. And the way I think you sum it up is this. The the commandment doesn't just condemn wrong-taking, but also wrong-keeping. In other words, if I have the ability to help someone who is in need and I don't, the Bible says that I've stolen from them. I've violated that commandment. So the positive side of this command, therefore, is that Jesus' people be generous people. There are Lots of verses we could go to, but let's, let's try Ephesians 4.28 since we just studied it this spring. Paul says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Doing honest work with his, his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That, that's why you stop stealing, so that I can share. Tim Keller says about this verse, "You've not stopped being a thief, biblically speaking, when you stop speaking, when you stop taking. You stopped being a thief when you start giving. Look, do, do the simplest of surveys through the New Testament. Luke chapter 10. 25 and following. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan, if you go back and think of it, is really a summary of the essence of the Christian living according to Jesus. And the way he summed it up is by going and caring for the people who are vulnerable in the world. That is essential Christian practice. You go to places like James 1.27, where he opens a statement and says, This is pure and undefiled religion. I you kind of want to call a timeout and be like, ooh, okay, note to self, this is big. He says, if you do ministry to the widows and the orphans, protecting vulnerable people, this is essential to what it means to be part of God's kingdom. And I honestly, if you take passages like Matthew 25 verse 31 and following seriously, we find that on judgment day, my generosity is going to be the primary vehicle by which God judges my faith to have been real or not. We could go on and on. There's plenty of passages the Bible teaches that. The bottom line is this. Christians are the people that give their money away. We just do. And I realize that for your first instinct, it's the first instinct in my heart too, so don't feel bad. Whenever someone says things like that, you're kind of like, oh, okay. How much? But the funny thing is, is we don't ever finish that sentence, do we, in our own hearts? (laughs) We don't ever say, how much do I need to give in order to keep me from feeling guilty? That's a terrible motivation, Right? So therefore, oftentimes there's a way of approaching this question which is wrong, but it's worth asking the question. Malachi chapter 3. It's the last book in the Old Testament. God is there condemning his people because they failed to honor what is known as the tithe. I don't get too hung up on that word. There's a lot of misunderstanding about that word. Literally translated, it just means 10%. And God goes to his people and says, I require that you learn to give away to the vulnerable around you and the people that can be used to minister to the vulnerable 10% 10% of your income. But here's the thing, and honestly, I have my father to thank for this. God rest his soul. But in, in the days before his passing, he, was, he served as an accountant for years and used to teach these uh, biblical financial classes for our church growing up. And I remember talking to my dad about the tithe at one point, being like, oh, 10%, pop, what's the deal? And he's like, yes. He goes, but actually, if you really go do the study through the Old Testament case code and you include all the stuff that was uh, asked for around the, the, the um the, the feast days and all the festivals and the celebrations that were going on, the number was probably a little closer to around 25% of your average, Israelis, your average Jewish person's uh, uh, income that was asked to be given away. And so he'd say, so here's your principle, son. Start at 10%, aim at 25. You'll be fine. <laughs> do you love it when your parents can be so condescending in that way and dole advice out like that, right? He understood what he was saying. But look, you've got to realize that if the statistics are true, what that means then is at present, conservative evangelicals who give a tithe constitute about 4% of, of, of Christian population. Conservative people, I'm talking about the people who believe the right things in America, 4%. Our own denomination did a study a while back that said that basically in our denomination, it's about 7%. So good on you, Presbyterian Church in America. <laughs> you've doubled it to 7 and no, I have no idea what this church's uh, statistics are. I have no interest in that anyway. All I'm trying to say is, you realize that if the statistics are true, more likely than not, the more money you make, the less you will give. And what's funny is, a lot of you young people don't believe me, but I promise you, it's true. A number of years ago, I was sitting with a couple of friends of mine, uh, both, whom, both of whom were pastors at major metropolitan city, uh, cities in the, uh, in the same metropolitan city in the Southeast. The one was a pastor of a sort of white suburban, uh, uh, upper middle class kind of church had about 350 members or so. And they had done a particular statistical study where they had taken all of the giving and averaged it across the giving units in the church and found that they were giving about $1,200 a year per family unit to the church. And as I was sitting and listening to this conversation, the other brother was a pastor of an inner city church in this major metropolitan city. Uh, he probably had about 35 to 45 members in his church, every single one of them below the poverty line. And when he heard that number from my friend, he said, no, 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 you must have added wrong. That can't be right. He's like, nope, that's what the number said. He goes, we did a similar study about six months ago of my people and the number came out to $1,700 a year per family unit. The poverty stricken church was giving actually more than the upper crust suburban church, but you've got to get used to that. When you dive into statistics, you're going to find that the money, that the people that are giving to charities in our country, by far are the people who make between $40,000 and $80,000 a year. Going away. It's just the way that it is. Now, how do you account for that? Well, we're going to do a deep dive into this in the spring when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount. But I'll give you a little preview today. Jesus, when he's going through the way in which people deal with these commands, says, hey, watch out for all kinds of greed. And it's peculiar because there's no other place in the rest of the sermon where he has to say, watch out for something. Why does he say that about greed? The reason is, is because greed has a way of hiding. It masks its own influence inside of us. And therefore, God is saying that you have to unearth it. And the best way to unearth it is to live with God's command to give it away. You'll never begin to erode your your, your addiction to your possessions until I learned to let him go. My favorite commentators, uh, Kent Hughes, said this, every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity, listen to this, is a perpetual de-deification of money. See what he's saying? When I give, I'm looking at my stuff and saying, you do not control me. I'm gonna let that sucker go. Giving keeps your money from ruling you. You know, when I was in the... uh, when I was in campus ministry, we took all these regular trips to New York City, as I've, I've, I've related many times before. And I met a man who ran the Bowery Avenue Mission by the name of Brian Johanson. Uh, Brian was a fascinating guy, and he used to come and meet with the students and talk about his vision and mission. And I'll never forget one time when he said this. He goes, look, I started this whole job with a refusal to give any homeless man a meal that I would not gladly eat myself. I would never ask him to sleep in a bed that I would not be perfectly comfortable sleeping in. And I would never ask him to wear any clothes that I would not be delighted to wear myself. And here's what's interesting Brian had completely befuddled the sociologists in New York City. They couldn't understand why it was that he was having the success that he was and the lowest rate of recidivism of any of the other people in the same mission. Well, I know why, and you know why. It's because he was generous. He learned to give his life away. A number of years ago, there was a story that it's actually last year. There was a story that came out on a Channel Three up in Memphis about a company uh, that did the unthinkable after their uh, their company blew up. It was a, it was a crane and rigging company uh, that kind of finally started making some real serious money. The value of the company was um, processed somewhere around four hundred million, but the company owners, the two CEOs, decided that they would begin to give away. 50% of their profits to organizations that were relieving suffering around the city of Memphis. 50%. It came out to somewhere around $2 million a month that they were giving away. And part of what had happened as they interviewed these two guys, or these two CEOs, it said, look, we made a decision that there was a cap to our pay. And they even said what it was. They said, we, once we began to net a little over $100,000, We just said we're going to take the rest of it and start to distribute it to other people. So don't get the idea that they were suffering somehow. But they had stopped themselves from going beyond it. Why? Well, they quote places like Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, when the Proverbs writer says this, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Man, that's some wisdom. I certainly don't need to be poor because the second that I do, I'm gonna steal and profane your name. But you know what? I don't need to be rich either because my tendency there is to look at you and be like, who needs you? That's wisdom. That's what these guys embrace. Listen to this quote from the CEO. He said, we have found great freedom in living a life with some financial constraints, living our life saying, God, everything we have is yours. Hey, did you hear that? We have freedom... Because of the constraints. How how, how can that be? Well, it comes from someone who's taking the Bible seriously that there's something in my heart that needs to be restrained. But once it is, I begin to flourish and grow. That is so counterintuitive. (laughs) To put restraints on my heart so that it can flourish, that's amazing. Look, I realize that as good as all this sounds, and by the way, I'm not commending any of these financial plans to any of you. That's not not the point of this. I'm giving you examples of what people have done. I just want to ask that when things like that happen to people with those kinds of gifts and that kind of vision to do so, how does that happen? I mean, how literally does it happen? And here's what I've come to think. I don't think you get that kind of assurance about your life Unless you know that your financial well-being is on a different foundation. That is, you really can't be generous until you're convinced that you're rich. That's what happens. You know, I had a student of mine years ago who got married right out of college. And we kept up. But man, those first few years of their marriage was rough financially. It was never enough. Threatened to undo their marriage. But they got some news, tragic news, that one of their parents had a terminal illness. But they also found out that upon their passing, they would receive a massive inheritance. that that, That was amazing. It didn't just change their countenance. It changed their entire outlook on life. It was transformational when they knew that there was wealth coming. Don't you see the point? Look, the question that we have to ask as we kind of work through how to apply the Eighth Commandment to our soul is, has Jesus made you rich yet? I mean that very specifically is there a sense in which he has formulated a treasure inside of me that has neutralized somehow the constant living out of a poverty of soul which makes me grasp at everything around me and hold it so tightly so that I can compensate for an internal emptiness has jesus made you wealthy I'm not asking if when you were a child you prayed to ask Jesus in your heart as your personal Lord and Savior. I'm asking, has he made you wealthy? Has there come a moment where suddenly the gospel, the good news, has dawned upon you in such a way that it's begun to erode away at the frenetic, stressed, and haggard life that we so often live as we chase the next thing? Has Jesus made you wealthy? This is the reason why we look at passages like 2 Corinthians 8-9 that says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. (laughs) Hey, you know what that means? That means don't project onto Jesus the same inertia to greed that we have. Jesus is not as greedy as you are. And he's not as withholding as I am to everyone around me. And that's good news because that means when you come to him, he has a treasure chest for his people. And it's good news and it's grace and it's amazing. And because it is, it transforms us. At least we hope so. Let's pray. Then Lord Jesus, we come to you. We come to you so that we can be rich. Rich in the only thing that we really need, which is the mercy that you have and the grace that you have. Father, give us the grace to sing it now, to herald it from our lives and our hearts, and relieve us, Father, from the tyranny of allegiance to our things, because we've come to see it in you. For we ask it all in Jesus' name.